Greetings friends and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. This week I'm a preacher who probably could have done with a good dose of Spurgeon's fabled chilli vinegar that he used to sip in the pulpit. Uh, I got a bit battered with a uh, some kind of coldy, fluey thing over the weekend and it's taken a little while to pick back up. I hope the voice will hold out. Uh, I hope it won't get too raspy and I hope you'll bear with me as we try to look at this week's sermon. It's Sermon 1042 in the sequence. It's from Hebrews chapter 3 verse 11 and the title is A Persuasive to Steadfastness. This one was delivered on a Thursday evening, the 29th of February, 1872, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. If you're reading along with us this week, we're reading 1039 to 1045. We trust that in selecting this sermon, you will find not just a a representative example of Spurgeon's ministry, but something that will do your soul good. We're trying to make sure that we cover both of those bases, not focusing so much on the man, not even focusing so much uh, on his quite marvellous ministry, which it must be said is, is astounding on so many levels. But we're looking at this man as a follower of Jesus Christ and a preacher of the good news concerning him. So his text on this occasion, as we've said, is Hebrews 3 and verse 14. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Here's the preacher's beginning. How is it possible for the preacher to say too much about faith or to extol this grace too highly? It is of vital importance, not at one stage of the Christian's history only, but throughout the whole of his career, from his setting out even until he reaches the goal where faith is turned to sight. By faith we begin the life of obedience to Christ, and by faith we continue to lead the life of holiness, for the just shall live by faith. This is the point of honour and of safety with all the just, the justified ones. The whole compass of their well-being, though it take in the sternest sense of duty and the highest grant of privilege, is to believe simply, to rely implicitly, and to confide cheerfully in their covenant God. It's a gripping opening that puts the topic front and centre for all those who are listening to what he has to say. We do not start with justification by faith, he assures us, and then look for perfection by works. We do not lean upon Christ when we're little children and then expect to run alone when we're men. But we live by drawing all our stores from him, while as yet we are naked and poor and miserable. When most enriched by his grace, we still have to say, and delight to say it, all my springs are in thee. Faith at the beginning and faith at the close. Faith all the way through is the one important matter. It's a real model in ensuring that uh, the congregation have got a fr- very much in their minds and before their eyes the topic of the sermon. He criticises unbelief as the greatest mischief to the saints, something to be earnestly watched against, whereas faith is always the channel of innumerable blessings to them. They ought, therefore, most watchfully to maintain it. It's a brief introduction. Spurgeon can do those. It's a punchy introduction. Uh, there's, There's no beating around the bush. Sometimes he uses illustrations or anecdotes. Sometimes he refers to current affairs. This one, right for the jugular. Faith is the issue. From the text, then, he wants us to consider a high privilege that we are made partakers of Christ. 
then by implication a serious question whether or not we've been made partakers of Christ ourselves, and then in the third place an unerring test. We are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And you already begin to hear something uh, as we look at that outline that the sermon, though it is uh, a high estimation and a sweet celebration of faith, there's also a strong exhortation to it. There's a real warning note that he sounds again and again here in in terms that I think are are strong, uh, even bordering on the dangerous. Uh, But we'll look at that, God willing, if we have time as we make our way through. Let's begin then with what he calls this very high privilege that we are made partakers of Christ. He begins by telling us things that the text does not say, that we're not made partakers with Christ, though that would be a precious truth. Christ holds for us the entire heritage of the faithful as our representative, and as we are made partakers with him in the Father's favour and in the world's hatred, so we shall be partakers with him in the glory to be revealed and the bliss which endures for ever and ever. But this is being partakers of Christ, not with Christ. Nor does it merely say that we are made partakers of rich spiritual benefits, to be partakers of pardoning mercy, of renewing grace, of the adoption, of sanctification, preservation, and of all the other covenant blessings, says Spurgeon, is to possess an endowment of unspeakable value. But to be made partakers of Christ, he says, is to have all in one. So then, we're made partakers of Christ when first of all by faith in him we procure a share in his merits. Sinful and sad, covered with transgressions, conscious of our shame, we come to the fountain filled with his blood, we washed in it, and were made white as snow. In that hour we became partakers of Christ. So faith grips Christ and so obtains a share in his merits. Christ is the substitute for sin. He suffered the penalty due from the unjust for whom he died to the violated law of God. And when we believe in him, we become partakers of those sufferings or rather of the blessed fruit of them. So that the blood of Jesus, which speaks better things than that of Abel, intercedes for mercy, not for vengeance. By its rich virtue, its real value, its vital merit, it puts our sins forever to death and lays our fears forever to rest. It's a beautiful little sentence there, uh, very punchy, again, without without being twee or without being uh, forced or uh, artificially crafted. So often you hear these sort of performed clevernesses, but Spurgeon's got a knack for these uh, punchy little uh, machine gun statements. Rich virtue, real value, vital merit, beautiful uh, alliterative statement of the, the excellence of Christ's saving death. And then he moves on that we're made partakers of Christ inasmuch as his righteousness also becomes ours by imputation. That means that his righteousness is counted to us. So when Jacob learns to trust in the Messiah and Israel hides behind his representative, the Lord our righteousness, Jacob ceases to wrestle for he prevails and Israel stands in honour for he is a prince with God. Blessed, thrice blessed, are they who are partakers of Christ in his righteousness. And then he's moving on, building this sense of privilege. We're thus saved from sin 
and then righteousness is imputed to us by faith, and further we become partakers of Christ by living upon him and feeding on him. At that table, uh, and you can imagine Spurgeon gesturing down at the table laden with bread and wine for the celebration of the Lord's table, uh, the habit at the tabernacle was to celebrate weekly. At that table, he says, we eat bread and we drink wine and the body is thus fed, typifying that through meditation upon the incarnate Christ, our soul is sustained. And by remembering the passion of the Lord, as the wine cup sets forth his blood, our spirits are comforted and revived and our hearts are nourished. It is not that the bread is anything or the wine anything, but it is that Christ is everything to us. This is, again, part of Spurgeon's uh, doctrine of communion with Christ and gives us a glimpse into what he thinks about the Lord's table, uh, this uh, real communion by faith, this, this uh, real presence in the truest and best sense of the word, that at the table, though the bread is bread and the wine is wine, the bread remains bread, the wine remains wine, yet nevertheless, laying hold of the Christ by faith, we are able by means of those symbols, to enter into real communion with him. So, brothers, you know, he says, what it is to feed upon Jesus and what satisfying food it is. When nothing else can give your soul rest and peace, remembering the incarnate God will do it. A study of the suffering Saviour will bring the refreshment and consolation that you want. But he now digs a little deeper, and the, the structure here is, uh, is interesting because he's been building through these uh, elements of what it means to partake of Christ by faith to procure a share in his merits, to receive his righteousness by imputation, to become partakers of Christ by living upon him and feeding on him. But now he's driving at something, the, the union that we have with Jesus Christ. Every true child of God is one with Christ. And this is the participation or partaking uh, that he really wants to now uh, push a little further. He calls it a matchless participation. It is a great mystery, says the apostle. And he's mentioned the uh, the, the foundation and the, the building. He's got the, the vine and the branches using these images, the husband and the wife. This is all about participation. And he says, this is such a mystery that they only know it who experience it. And even they cannot understand it fully. Far less can they hope to set it forth so that carnal minds shall comprehend its spiritual meaning. The day comes when we shall be partakers of Christ to the highest and uttermost degree that symbols can suggest, prophecy, forestall, faith, anticipate, or actual accomplishment bring to pass. For, albeit, though of all that our Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven, we have a reversionary interest today by faith, we shall have a share in it by actual participation ere long. What he's saying is, it won't be long until that participation, which is now, you might say, mystical, will be not only mystical, but fully realized, actual in our experience. And so he says, partakers of Christ, yes, and therefore with him, partakers in destiny. All right and all might, all that can extol or delight, all that forever and forever shall contribute to the glory of Christ, shall be shared by all the faithful, for we are partakers not only with him, but of him, of Christ. He's digging into the language again. Therefore, of all the surroundings of glory and honour that shall belong to him. And he wants to underscore, 
Typical Spurgeon. This is not something that we have any privilege to by nature. We are made partakers of Christ. From our first parentage, we derived a very different entail. We, we had no entitlement to this because we were of Adam. But we are now made partakers of Christ. And this is the Holy Ghost's work in us to rend us away from the old wild olive and to graft us into the good olive, to dissolve the union between us and sin and to cement a union between our souls and Christ, to take us out of the Egyptian bondage and the Egyptian night in which we willingly sat and to bring us into the liberty and the light wherewith Christ makes his people free and glad. This is work as grand and godlike as to create a world. For it let the Lord's name be magnified by each one of us, if indeed we have been made partakers of Christ. If, I say, and that if leads me to the second point I propose to consider. Really good for those of us who are preachers to note the way that Spurgeon uh, moves from one of his points to the next. There are these connections here that he wants to pick up. So he set forth the, the beauty and the excellence of being made partakers of Christ. He's really digging into this language that we are made partakers of Christ and made partakers and, and what that actually means. But the the if that is in the text is not something that Spurgeon can uh, can overlook if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And so this brings the, the solemn searching question, the, uh, the challenge, the warning to our souls. Are we made partakers of Christ? Oh, beloved, he says, many think they are who are not. A suppositious righteousness, he warns us against. A counterfeit justification, a spurious hope. Be assured of this, he says to the congregation. All men are not partakers of Christ. All baptized men are not partakers of Christ. All church men are not partakers of Christ. All dissenters are not made partakers of Christ. All members of this church are not made partakers of Christ. All ministers, all elders, all bishops are not made partakers of Christ. Yea, all apostles were not made partakers of Christ. One of them, Christ's familiar friend who kept the little purse which held all the master's earthly store, lifted up his heel against him, betrayed him with a tender, treacherous kiss and became the son of perdition. He was a companion of Christ, but not a partaker of him. Spurgeon personalizes the question and presses it home. Am I made a partaker of Christ? He sweeps across the congregation. Multiply the question, he demands, till each individual among you makes it his own. In this congregation, there are various classes. This is him as what the Puritans called a discriminating preacher that is breaking down the different uh, spiritual states and conditions of the congregation and addressing them in those different elements. And he talks about the mere hearers and the uh, outward professors and the temporary followers. And this is where the warning really is brought to bear. So he says, there are probably some here who are only hearers, hearers about Christ, not partakers of Christ. You've heard about the banquet, but you're not feeding at it. You've heard about the rippling streams of the wilderness, but you've not stooped down to drink. Oh, my dear hearers, he moans, some of you are as familiar with the gospel as you are with the house you live in. Yet though you live in the house, you never live in the gospel, and I fear you never will. You hear it and hear it, that is all. 
God grant you may not have to hear of your hearing in another world, where it shall be laid down among the chief of your sins, that you were of those who, when they heard, did provoke, provoke because they rejected what they ought to have received. He says, others go further than hearing, and they become professors. That is, they make an outward professor of faith. He says, it's one thing to say you're a partaker of Christ, and another thing to be made one. You can profess that you're rich and all the while be a bankrupt and dishonest at that because you're pretending that you're not a bankrupt. You might protest to be in health while a deadly cancer lurks within. You might declare yourself honest, but it won't clear you before the judge if you're proved to be a thief. He says it's not enough then simply to have the the outward profession. There needs to be the reality that the mere sprinkling or baptizing on profession of faith. But was I ever baptized into Christ? I've said to others I'm a Christian, but am I in very deed known unto Christ? Or will he say to me in that day, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of iniquity? Second part of the warning. The third, solemn questionings, avers Spurgeon. Many persons are temporary followers of Christ, and outwardly, as far as the human eye can follow, they appear to be real followers of Christ. Now, this is where Spurgeon gets onto slightly dangerous territory. I'll read you quite a long section here so that you can get the whole sense of it and you can hear how far he goes and then how he just pulls back right at the end. This is what he says. I believe in the final perseverance of the saints, but I do not know, nor can any man know, how near a man may approach to the likeness of a saint, and yet, after all, apostatize. Nor is any one of us able to say of himself, or of any of his fellow members, we shall never fall away. I remember one whose voice I, and many of you, often heard in prayer, and we enjoyed the exercise of his gifts. The man had been reclaimed from the lowest class of society. He distinguished himself by his devotion in such a way that he was accepted as a church officer among us. I remember when the first charge of sin was brought against him and a very grievous sin, one among us said, If that man is not a child of God, I am not a child of God. The expression seemed to me too strong, but in my heart I almost joined in. I was ready to pronounce him innocent before I investigated the charges. I felt certain that there could not be in such a man as that the impurity laid at his door. Yet it was there. It was all there, and worse than tongue can tell. He repented, and though not received into the church because the profession of repentance did not seem to be all we could wish it to be, yet there was a turning aside from sin for a while. But he went into it again, and he wallowed in it. He died in it. As far as we could any of us judge, he perished in it. He went from bad to worse. I feel I might say without uncharitableness, this man carried his iniquity as far as human judgment could track him. Therefore, without prejudice to the doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints, which I implicitly believe, I will not venture to say of any among you, much less will I venture to say it of myself, that I am sure I am so made a partaker of Christ that I shall hold fast my confidence to the end. I hope so. I rest in Christ, trusting in him. The possibility is that I am deceiving myself. The possibility is that you may be self-deceivers." 
at any rate, it is so far a possibility that I would beseech you to have no confidence but such as the Holy Ghost gives you, to put no reliance as to the future anywhere but in the eternal arms, have no assurance but that assurance which is based upon the word of God and the witness of the Spirit within your soul, that can give you infallible assurance. Apart from that, I repeat it again, I will say neither of you nor of myself that I can be sure with all the profession that is made that you are partakers of Christ. Some go even further than being temporary followers of Christ, and yet, after all, perish. They maintain a consistent profession before the eye of men throughout the whole of their lives as vessels that navigate the whole of the sea and go down in the harbour. There are soldiers that have held out and fought valiantly up to the very moment of victory and then have run away. And there are professors that have been unexceptional in their lives, whose character has been apparently without blemish, and even those who knew them in private could not detect any serious flaw in their conduct. Yet for all that, there was a worm at the root, a fly in the pot of ointment, a failure as to the sincerity of their grace. Now this is... This is, as I say, this is borderline stuff because Spurgeon can be very, very tender with those who are are troubled about the possibility of self-deception. And yet here he goes so far as to say almost that there's nothing that you could say that will give any one of us final confidence that you will endure to the end. And then he kind of pulls back and says, well, there is the confidence that the Holy Ghost gives. No reliance as to the future, except in the eternal arms. No assurance, but that based upon the word of God. And he's stripping away, saying, no matter what you say or how far you appear to have gone, it is not your profession or outward progression that is the confidence that you can rest upon. There's a counterfeit of the true metal of grace so well manufactured that only omniscience itself can tell which is the reprobate silver and which is the pure shekel of the sanctuary. Grave reason have we then for raising the question as to whether we are made partakers of Christ or not. It really is penetrating, searching, warning stuff. How is Spurgeon going to resolve this? He's begun, remember, with this sweet declaration of the high privilege of partaking of Christ. Now he's brought the solemn searching question, am I then one of those so partaking? Am I mistaken? And now he's going to resolve the tension by the unerring test, his third point. Patience comes to the aid of faith here. Evidences accumulate till the issue is conclusive. We are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Now, Spurgeon says you can read that passage in two ways, neither of which violates the literal meaning of the original, either of which may express to us the mind of the Spirit. The version he's using translates it the beginning of our confidence. He says, I would rather translate it the foundation of our confidence, the basis on which our confidence rests. And he says we're going to expound and vindicate both. Now, he uses the language, the beginning of our confidence, but he's got this sense that, that it's the, the first point to which we come, the, the foundation of our confidence. And he tries to weave that in. So he says, that man is a partaker of Christ who holds fast the faith he had at first, having received it not as an education, that is not just taught 
taught it to rehearse it, but as an intuition of his spiritual life, not as an argument, but as an axiom he could not challenge, or rather as an oracle he received joyfully and bowed to submissively. The confidence based upon the true foundation, even Christ Jesus, is simple and clear as one's own consciousness. It asks no proof because it admits no doubt. And he says, so what was the beginning? Where did you build that foundation? Well, the beginning of my confidence was I am a sinner. Christ is a saviour and I rest on him to save me. And here's Spurgeon doing what he does so well, stripping away everything but Christ and carrying us back to Christ alone. I know, he says, when I first cast my eye to his dear cross and rested in him, I had not any merit of my own. It was all demerit. I was not deserving except that I felt I was hell-deserving. I had not even a shade of virtue that I could confide in. It was all over with me. I'd come to an extremity. I could not have found a farthing's worth of goodness in myself if I'd been melted down. I seemed to be all rottenness, a dunghill of corruption, nothing better but something a great deal worse. And he says, Now, brothers, we are not made partakers of Christ unless we hold this fast to the end, this absolute reliance on Christ only. Have you got beyond that, then, he asks? Do you think you're something better? Are you something creditable in your own estimation? If so, I am afraid for you. Are you richer now in yourselves than you were then? Then I'm afraid for you, brothers. Do you mind the place you used to stand in? You dared not lift your eyes to heaven, but cried, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now in Christ you have a far nobler place than that, for you are made to sit with him in the heavenly places. But I ask you, apart from Christ, have you any different place from that of deep self-abasement? If you have, you have not held the beginning of your confidence fast even until now. He says, there's the sign that you are a partaker of Christ, that you see as little in yourself as you ever did and as much in Christ and more than you did. Brothers, where else was the beginning of your confidence? May we not say of it that it was only and wholly, entirely and exclusively in the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning of your confidence, you didn't rely upon any ceremonies, nor upon priests, nor upon your Bible readings, nor upon your prayings, nor upon your feelings, nor your experiences, nor your orthodoxy, nor your knowledge of doctrine, nor upon your works, nor your preachings, your sanctifications, or your mortifications. A devastating list. And there are all kinds of people who love to profess their orthodoxy, who will rest their confidence upon their feelings, their prayings, their experiences, rather than on Christ. No, says Spurgeon, in the beginning of your confidence, the one foundation was Jesus only. Nothing save Jesus would I know. He's pressing back. If you build on the rock of Christ's finished work and partly on the sand of your own unworthy doing, the whole house totters. The beginning, the foundation must be Christ and Christ only. Then he asks again, well, brothers, is there any correspondence between the beginning of your confidence and your present lookout? He says, no, you're going to be stripped naked of everything but that which Christ spins. You don't go back to 
anything. You must have all your bread mouldy till you cast it out because you loathe it and feed on nothing but the bread of heaven. And if you get beyond that and feed on anything else, then you're not made a partaker of Christ, for you have not held fast the beginning of your confidence. So often we see people, perhaps especially toward the end of their pilgrimage, and they're, they're looking back to some doctrinal foundation. They're looking back to some experience that they've either had or should have had. They're looking for uh, to, to go through the motions that some denomination has imposed upon them or insisted on, and they're looking away from Jesus Christ, and that's why they struggle and stumble at the end. But do you not then have confidence in Christ of a humble character as you did at the beginning? Spurgeon says that's just how we ought always to live, lowly, humble, gentle, broken-spirited, ready to be anything so that Christ may be glorified. It shows the risings of the old nature when we get to be such consequential people that if anybody should say a hard word, we wonder, or if anybody slanders us, instead of saying, Ah, if he knew us, he could say something a good deal worse. We're in a high and mighty temper because our brilliant character is injured. No, there's a humility and there's a, there's a gratefulness. He said, when I was converted, I'd have been happy to be made a doormat for the saints to wipe their feet on. If we're made partakers of Christ, the proof will be in our continuing to be of a meek and lowly spirit, willing to serve him in any capacity, in our becoming like little children. For except we become as little children, we shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Little children we were in the beginning of our confidence. Little children we must continue to be, or else we may gravely question whether we've been made partakers of Christ. When we were first made partakers of Christ, then we received him very gratefully. How thankful we were for one look from Jesus' eye. Half a promise seemed precious in those days. We weren't picking and choosing. We were thankful for everything that he could give us. So long as we could get hold of a promise, have a smile from Christ's face, or enjoy one ray of the blessed Spirit's consolation in our souls, we were happy. But now, have the starving beggars become dainty epicures? Have the, the starving hordes become picky eaters in effect? Do you loathe the bread, though it's the bread of angels? Then such a proud, captious state of heart does not show that we've been made partakers of Christ. And then he talks about obedience. Obedience in word and deed, a scrupulous conscience. He says, the first week after I was converted to God, I felt afraid to put one foot before another for fear I should do wrong. He says, I, I chastened myself sorely, and had I known at that time anything to be my Lord's will, I think I should not have hesitated to do it. And he says, have you held fast the beginning of your confidence? Have you gone on not slack in keeping his commandments? And now here's that gospel genius again at work. If you feel as if you've fallen away, if you know that you have stumbled and fallen short to the cross again, beloved, if any of you have any doubts aroused in your mind by such bitter reflections upon yourselves, do not dispute with your doubts. Go to the cross again. Don't argue with the devil. He'll always beat you. Go straight to the cross. If Satan says you're a sinner, you claim it. It's the one thing that he cannot dispute with you. You can claim it against him. I am a sinner, but Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and if I never trusted him before, I will begin now. 
You go to him, he uses the illustration of some coal miners down in the pit and the shaft that they thought they were going to climb out by got got blocked up. And one of them, at the point of perishing, remembered the, the old shaft. They had to climb down and crawl along in order to get it, along on their hands and knees. And at length they came to the mouth of the old shaft and found their way to the upper air again. Spurgeon says, well, if some of you have been living to this point by frames and feelings, if you've been going back and forth by the shaft of experience, it's been blocked up tonight. You've got to go on your hands and knees now where the sinners go, and you'll find that the old shaft is not shut up. There is light. Look up. There is the cross above you. Jesus is still willing to receive sinners, still able to save sinners, for he is exalted on high to give repentance unto Israel and remission of sins. Oh, come to him just that way. And brother, when you get back to Christ in that way by which you went years ago, the advice of the text with which I will sum up all is to keep on coming to him in that same way always. Spurgeon closes with another blast against everything apart from Christ, every frame and feeling and experience. He says it like this, keep on coming always, keep on coming always. Perhaps you've been on the top of a mountain such as the Rigi or a Snowden. You know these mountains do not move. They're good solid rock under your feet. But people erect platforms on the top of them to see the sun rise a little sooner or something of that sort. From the top of one of those platforms, a man may come down with a crash and break his limbs. That's something like our erections, which we put up over our simple faith in Christ. You understand the things that we build on top of the rock solid reality of Christ and resting upon him. Our beautiful frames and feelings and experiences, they will come down with a crash someday for their rotten stuff. But when a man stands upon this, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and I'm resting upon him. He is all my salvation and all my desire. His precious blood is all my confidence. The love of his heart, the power of his arm, the merit of his plea. Here I rest myself. Oh, beloved, there is no fear of that confidence ever giving way beneath your feet. There may you stand and serenely rejoice when worlds shall melt and the pillars of the earth shall reel. God bless you and keep you ever holding the beginning of your confidence steadfast unto the end. So shall it be proved beyond question that you are partakers of Christ. There's Spurgeon, the, the preeminent gospel preacher. There's the man who knows how to bring the truth to bear upon our souls. There's the man who knows how to blast away every false confidence and all of the things that disappoint and terrify us because they won't hold our weight and to bring us back to Christ as the rock. I hope it's done that for you. I hope this will be a blessing to you. The sermon opening with a note of faith and closing with the eye of faith fixed firmly upon the Lord and the Lord alone. Well, God willing, you'll join us again on another occasion next week. Uh, we're looking at sermons 1046 to 1052, and our featured sermon is going to be 1049 on intercessory prayer. Do join us then. If you can leave a review for us, uh, please do that. You can find out more at mediagratii.org slash podcasts. But until then, may God bless you and keep you ever holding the beginning of your confidence steadfast 
unto the end, proving beyond question that you are partakers of Christ.